Chapter 4 Futures Contracts Everybody's Business I can picture a certain type of reader who might have picked up this book and skipped straight to this chapter because they themselves will never have to handle a physical bushel of grain and all they really want to know is how to bring in some extra commodity-related profits to their investment portfolio. There's no doubt people can, and do, trade grain futures contracts without even giving a moment's thought to what grain is or how it's moved around. Heck, some people probably even make money at it. But I maintain you can make better profits, or at least protect yourself from totally unexplained losses, if you develop a firm understanding of the actual trading mechanisms behind those grain investments you want to trade. The Trouble with Cash Contracts To get an idea of what a futures contract is and why it exists, first think about what might happen if one or another party defaults on a forward cash contract. Let's say an elevator and a farmer both willingly enter into a forward contract for 100,000 bushels of soybeans to be delivered at harvest in mid-October for $12 per bushel. The elevator is happy because it can turn around and resell those soybeans to a processor at some profit margin. At a 10 cent profit margin, those 100,000 bushels would represent $10,000 of business for the elevator. Meanwhile, the farmer is happy because he knows what price he will receive for his beans at harvest, and he feels it is a good price. He's happy to lock that in and remove risk from his operation. But both of their happiness depends on the other party to the contract actually making good on what they said they would do. For instance, if the price of soybeans skyrockets to $16 per bushel, the elevator would start to feel some risk. It knows that if the farmer chooses, he could physically deliver those 100,000 bushels to some other buyer and receive an extra $400,000 in his pocket. That's the $16 minus the $12 times 100,000. That would be immoral, illegal, and indefensible in a court of law. The elevator would have a record of the farmer signing a contract to deliver those 100,000 bushels of soybeans, and if he doesn't do so, it could sue him. Nonetheless, the risk exists of a counterparty failing to perform on a contract, and it becomes increasingly pertinent if the contract is written in a region or between parties where the legal enforcement of the contract could be a struggle, some intercontinental trades, for instance. On the other hand, let's say the elevator goes bankrupt, and meanwhile the price of soybeans has fallen to $8 per bushel. Now the farmer, through no fault of his own, is suddenly going to have to accept $400,000 less revenue from some other buyer, because the elevator that originally wrote the contract won't be able to pay him anything. A grain buyer going bankrupt creates more complicated problems for its farmer clients than just the default of forward contracts. Consider that the same farmer probably would have had grain in storage at that elevator, for which he might now never be paid, and that the loss of even one grain buyer in his region will reduce the competitiveness of the entire local market. 
There may also be situations where a buyer or seller of grain may be forced to default on a contract without it being an ethical failure. Let's say the farmer who sold the elevator 100,000 bushels of soybeans signed the contract in June when the beans were planted and the weather was nice and everything looked perfectly on track for a record large crop. Then let's say July and August passed as two straight months of withering heat and zero precipitation. The bean plants all failed to flower, and when harvest time rolled around, there was nothing in the fields to even be harvested. That would obviously be a huge problem for everybody. The farmer has no crop to generate revenue to pay back the creditors who lent him money for seed, chemicals, fuel, and labor throughout the summer. The elevator will never see the 100,000 bushels of soybeans it had in turn committed to a processing plant, so it will be on the hook to find other beans to fulfill its own sales contract. Its further problem is that the hot, dry summer probably didn't confine itself to just that one farmer's 2,000 acres. Most likely, the entire region from which it buys grain won't have any crop to sell. Even if it hadn't already placed itself financially on the line to make forward sales elsewhere, it would still be facing an entire year of poor profit. Without bushels, there can be no per-bushel profit margin. Anyway, the vast, vast majority of forward contracts are willingly and happily written and fulfilled without giving a lot of thought to the risks of default. But anybody who's trading physical grain ought to keep those counterparty risks firmly lodged in the back of his mind. And anybody who's trading grain futures contracts ought to be grateful not to deal with such risks for reasons that will soon become clear. Buying out of a contract For that biggest crop production risk, weather, there are crop insurance products. Farmers purchase these policies before planting, and then if the crop fails, they receive a cash settlement. At the very least, the cash should help repay their lost input costs. But if a large enough policy was purchased, it would also ideally help the farmer maintain his family's annual income and also make him able to financially buy out of any forward contracts he may have previously written with a buyer. In the example above, if the farmer couldn't deliver those 100,000 bushels of soybeans to the elevator, the elevator would be legally obligated to its shareholders to seek financial damages from the farmer. He would have to buy out of the contract at whatever current market price prevails. In the event of a widespread crop failure, we can assume the prevailing market price would be quite high indeed. Let's say the soybean market moved from $12 per bushel in June to $14 per bushel on the October day the farmer walks into the elevator to settle up. He would have to write the elevator a $200,000 check straight up in order to reimburse them for the current value of $1.4 million worth of beans for which they had agreed to pay $1.2 million. In other words, the elevator was going to lose out on $200,000 of market appreciation because the farmer didn't deliver, so it would have a legal right to seek that value from the farmer. Alternatively, it may negotiate an arrangement with the farmer to just deliver that same quantity of beans from next year's harvest, but the elevator isn't obligated to be so accommodating. 
Contractually, it's owed that cash value in October, and any agreement to delay the income will have to be made to the elevator's benefit, not the farmer's. Actually, at any point in time, at the request of either the buyer or the seller of a forward grain contract, the terms of the contract can always be renegotiated. If one party requests it, it's not the other party's obligation to agree, but that is just the nature of contracts in general, not grain contracts in particular. It is therefore an immutable feature of a forward cash grain contract that once it is entered into, it's awfully hard and usually not a net advantage to change your mind and get back out of it. If on June first the farmer wrote the contract to sell his soybeans at harvest for twelve dollars, then on June fifth he changed his mind because he thinks the prices will be better later. He can call up the elevator and request to buy out of the contract for however much value the market has changed in those four days, but the elevator, whose business it is to always want to buy as many bushels as it can, would have no motivation to agree to the request. Effectively, it could attach any arbitrary transaction fee it wants to the renegotiated contract, and if it makes the fees punitive enough, it will discourage the farmer from backing out. A larger, more forgiving market. More importantly, this is a good introduction to one of the most exciting aspects of the grain markets. If we philosophically isolate the inefficiencies of forward grain contracts to be these issues of fungibility—that is, they can't be efficiently traded out of because they're not standardized or interchangeable for each other or for cash—and liquidity. That is, they can't be efficiently traded out of because there may not be a population of other traders who are willing to take on your offsetting trade. We can start to imagine what a more efficient grain contract might look like. Obviously, it would need to allow grain producers and buyers to sell or buy contracts that would lock in a price for grain at some future date. Thereby removing price risk from their operations, just like forward grain contracts do. But ideally, it would also be possible to sell or buy such contracts with minimal transaction costs at any time at a fair market price. This would require a massive population of willing market participants to ensure that somebody somewhere would always be willing to take the other side of any bid or offer. Furthermore, it would have to have built-in guards against counterparty risk. Well, reader, we are in luck. Such a platform of products does indeed already exist, and it is called the futures market. The key feature that makes a futures market more efficient than the practice of forward contracting is standardization. Each cash-forward contract is a singular thing. It's got a unique number of bushels tied to a precise location. It trades a specific sample of grain. A futures contract is more of an abstraction. It's a financial contract entered into on behalf of some theoretical standardized grain at some time in the future. That means each futures contract can be exactly like every other futures contract in that particular market. For instance, five thousand bushels of standard hard red spring wheat, representing any five thousand bushels of any HRS wheat. 
With the invention of this instrument, the grain markets now had a way to trade a comparable, standardized contract everywhere, with everyone, across all geographies and time, regardless of the underlying idiosyncratic physical grain sample which that particular futures contract was meant to represent. You can already guess that these futures contracts were invented as a hedging tool. They are more fungible and tradable than physical grain samples, but still, the sale or purchase of a futures contract can be used as a financial substitute for the future sale or purchase of roughly equivalent physical grain. Because they are so nicely tradable, sure enough, people do trade them, and not just hedgers. Investors and speculators trade them too. That addresses the liquidity problem. As long as there is a population of willing buyers, sellers, and market makers gathered around, it becomes possible to always be able to get in or out of a futures trade, even if it's not at quite the price you want. This is why it's particularly valuable to have speculators in the trading population as well as hedgers. The more traders who are willing to buy or sell at independent price levels, the more liquid a market becomes. And while a farmer might be hesitant to sell 5,000 bushels of physical grain to just any random person on the street who offers to write him a check, remember counterparty risk, someone buying or selling a futures contract can be confident he will receive his full financial profit or loss because futures contracts are all traded through a centralized, anonymous exchange. The counterparty who will pay out on a profitable futures trade isn't the other random trader who bought when you sold or sold when you bought. It's the exchange itself. The exchange will also be the entity that collects money from you if your futures trade results in a financial loss. Commodity Futures so let's examine the reality of what a grain futures contract really is before you call up your broker and go long five contracts of oats. First of all, that call up your broker language should tell you something. You might be familiar with trading stocks and mutual funds and bonds and the like, perhaps as part of a retirement plan. Although the underlying assets are as different as lemons and a lemonade manufacturing company, the mechanism for trading grain futures contracts is similar, in some ways, to trading shares of a company on the stock market. Shares in a company aren't something you can just go to your local drugstore and pick up. There is really only one place you can trade shares in Verizon, for instance, the New York Stock Exchange, NYSE. An exchange is a platform for aggregating all the buying and selling interest in a given market in order to transparently and efficiently determine that market's price. We've all seen video of aggressive traders in colored jackets frantically buying and selling stocks from each other or displaying unforgettable consternation on their faces on those days when the market crashes. Those traders were actually on the floor of the NYSE, and through a stock brokerage company, you can have an order to buy or sell stock phoned in directly to those human beings. You can also place orders for Verizon stock over the internet, which get traded electronically without ever having a human trader on the floor of the NYSE look at them. 
but your electronic trade still gets pooled together with all the other trades coming into the exchange, and therefore all trades happen through the same centralized exchange mechanism. Because of that system, there is always one true official publicly known price for a publicly traded company's stock at any given point in time. Grain futures are financial assets similar to stocks traded via exchanges like the Intercontinental Exchange, the ICE, or the CME Group's Chicago Board of Trade, CBOT, similar to stock exchanges. But wait a second. We just got through discussing the many different factors that go into pricing grains. There can't be one true official publicly known price for corn, can there? If high quality corn at the port in Galveston is worth $6.50 per bushel and moldy light test weight corn in Minnesota is worth $4.75 per bushel. These exchange traded grain prices, what are they representing really? If you call up your futures broker and say, buy corn, what are you going to end up with? A truckload of corn on your front lawn? No. Futures contracts are derivatives of the actual market for their underlying asset, which is to say they represent that asset's price at some point in the um, future. For instance, you can trade stock futures. Walmart stock futures are not actually shares in the Walmart company, but they financially represent what Walmart shares will be worth in three months or six months or whenever. You can also trade futures contracts for U.S. treasuries, various foreign currencies, stock indexes, and obviously for various physical commodities. A September corn futures contract, for instance, will have a price related to what traders think physical corn will be worth in September. Turning Grain Futures into Real Grain But after reading the previous chapters, now you've got to ask, what will physical corn be worth in September where? At what quality? The CBOT and other grain trading exchanges designate official warehouses to facilitate the physical delivery process that ultimately ties these futures contracts to the cash grain markets they represent. Sticking with the September corn futures contract example, each grain futures contract traded by the exchange has a standardized expiration date namely the last trading day before the 15th calendar day of the expiration month. So let's say all trading of September corn futures has to stop by the end of the trading session on September 14th. By that time, everyone who still has an open futures position, that is everyone who bought September futures and never sold out of them, will be able to turn those contracts into real physical corn. If a trader was short 5,000 bushels worth of September corn futures, that would mean he was previously representing the sale of 5,000 bushels of physical corn, and now that the delivery time frame for the September contract has rolled around, he has to offset that short futures position by owning and delivering 5,000 bushels of real physical corn to a CBOT warehouse somewhere. And if another trader was long 5,000 bushels worth of September corn futures, that would mean she was previously representing the purchase of 5,000 bushels of physical corn. 
and now that the middle of September has rolled around, she will receive 5,000 bushels of real, actual corn located at that same warehouse. The exchange itself does the matching between those traders who want to deliver cash corn and those who want to receive cash corn, issuing assignments and receipts for the actual physical corn that was delivered to the warehouse. As it happens, the warehouse in this process is just one of several exchange-designated grain elevators. A document called a warehouse receipt represents the physically delivered grain and can be used to honor a futures contract. The price a deliverer receives for grain is determined by the final settlement price of the futures contract. So one would hope, given the principles of arbitrage, that the final settlement price of the futures contract will be equal to the fair market price for physical grain at the delivery location. And that's why it's important for futures traders to think about the delivery mechanism, even though something like 99% of all grain futures contracts are never actually held through expiration and turned in for cash delivery. At the contract's expiration, Futures prices should match local cash prices at the delivery warehouses, so even futures investors need to know all the things that affect cash prices. This principle of futures and cash prices matching up at the time of delivery is called convergence. Corn futures contracts start trading years before their actual expiration date. For instance, December 2050 contracts will probably start trading in mid-December 2046. So for a long time, the futures prices can be very far apart from the actual local cash grain prices. But the closer a futures contract gets to expiration, the more its price should start to converge with the price of cash grain at the delivery point. Because cash grain prices are different all across the country and the world, and because local supply and demand factors can affect cash grain prices, it's relevant to consider just where it is the grain is being delivered to honor those few futures contracts that are held until expiration. For the grain and oilseed futures contracts traded through the CME group, that is corn, soybeans, soybean meal, soybean oil, Chicago SRW wheat, KCHRW wheat, oats, and rough rice, the delivery points can be any of the quote-unquote regular warehouses or shipping stations designated for delivery. These warehouses are licensed under the U.S. Warehouse Act and are capable of issuing official warehouse receipts that electronically represent the grain they hold. Geographically, their location depends on the historic traditions of where the grain has been raised and traded. Rice deliveries, for instance, tend to be made in warehouses in Arkansas. Deliverable oats can be located in warehouses along either the Illinois Waterway or in Minnesota to be shipped on Lake Superior or along the Mississippi River. For soybean oil and soybean meal, which would be coming out of a soy processing plant to be delivered against a futures contract, the CME Group's rule book specifies discounts and premiums to adjust the contract price in recognition of the variable shipping costs between a soy processor in Iowa versus one in Missouri, for instance. But let's consider the case of standard number two yellow corn. In order for it to be physically delivered to honor a futures contract, 
corn must be located in a licensed warehouse directly along the Illinois waterway. That's essentially any of the large commercial elevators with barge loading capabilities anywhere from east of Chicago down to Peoria, Illinois. That's a pretty specific geography. It means that due to arbitrage, we can generally expect grain futures prices at expiration to eventually match the cash prices for barge loaded grain in southern Illinois and Indiana. Wheat is interesting too. It used to be only soft red winter SRW wheat or feed wheat that was traded in Chicago. But due to mergers between exchanges, there are now two wheat contracts listed at the CME Group the Chicago contract and the KC contract, which represents the hard red winter HRW wheat formerly traded in Kansas City. Deliveries for Chicago SRW wheat can be made at barge loading facilities from Ohio to St. Louis. Deliveries for KC HRW wheat contracts must be made at elevators with rail points in Kansas City, Hutchinson, Salina, Abilene, or Wichita, Kansas. Meanwhile, the Minneapolis Grain Exchange is still operating independently and trading the Hard Red Spring, HRS, wheat futures contracts, which are deliverable at elevators in Minneapolis, St. Paul, Red Wing, or Duluth, Minnesota. The ICE the Intercontinental Exchange, also trades grain futures contracts. Deliveries can be made in Canada for its canola contracts and for certain varieties of wheat. Elevators dotting the prairie from Manitoba to British Columbia are considered delivery points for expiring canola futures contracts, but only those within a region right around Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, hold grain which is priced at par with the expiring contracts. Grain deliveries from other elevators farther away from that region receive either a premium or discount due to their differing transportation costs. Also at the ICE, there are some grain futures contracts which have no delivery mechanism, but are instead cash settled at expiration according to the price of the matching CBOT futures contract. U.S. Futures Exchanges so there isn't just one place you can look to find grain prices. It's anyone's prerogative to set up a new futures trading exchange as either a physical trading floor or a computer-based order handling protocol or both. Of course, any new exchange would be scrutinized by the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, that's the CFTC, which is the government regulator of commodity futures and options markets in the United States. It's an independent agency created by Congress and run by presidentially appointed commissioners with the mission to, quote, protect market users and the public from fraud, manipulation, abusive practices, and systemic risk related to derivatives that are subject to the Commodity Exchange Act and to foster open, competitive, and financially sound markets, end quote. Its day-to-day -day business, therefore, is to monitor the exchange's policies themselves and also the participation by traders. For instance, they implement position limits on markets to prevent one or two big traders from cornering any given market, and they report the aggregate positions held by hedgers, speculators, and swap dealers in a weekly Commitments of Traders report. So really, as long as a futures exchange is legitimate, and not offering fraudulent products, 
It's free to gather traders together and transact business. There are exchanges that offer futures markets for electricity, cryptocurrencies, emissions, freight, various equity indexes, interest rate products, real estate price indexes, weather, etc. Basically, anything you can structure with one official standard price point at any given point in time can be traded as a futures market. The more the merrier. But just because something can be traded as a futures market doesn't mean it will be traded as a futures market. I can think of a number of commoditized substances for which there are currently no futures contracts being traded. Salt, rocks, copier paper, frozen concentrated lemonade. The biggest challenge exchanges face when they introduce new contracts is convincing traders to use them. Traders like to make their trades through exchanges that have a lot of volume and liquidity. The greater the number of other traders trying to get an order filled in a market on any given day, the greater the chances that your own order will be able to find a willing counterparty and get filled at an agreeable price. In a grain-specific example, the leading Chicago wheat futures contract tends to have 15 times as much daily volume, that's the number of trades transacted in any given day, as the Minneapolis Grain Exchange, MGEX, wheat futures contract. It could happen that a trader who puts in a market buy order for Chicago wheat and at the same time a separate buy order for Minneapolis wheat could have the Chicago order sold to her instantaneously at exactly the price she had in mind. But if there were fewer willing sellers in Minneapolis and their asking prices were farther apart, the trader's buy order at that exchange might get filled two or three cents away from what she had in mind. Relatively illiquid markets, that is, less populated markets in which it's harder to buy and sell, tend to have more choppy, volatile price movements, and that becomes especially discouraging when a trader starts to think about having to eventually exit a trade. If there's a panic, in a less liquid market she runs the risk of the market collapsing relatively faster without any willing buyers to stop the fall. We can observe how low liquidity can sometimes become a self-fulfilling prophecy. If there's already a low volume of trade in a given market, new traders might avoid it for fear of illiquidity-related volatility, and that means the volume of trade stays low, and that means traders avoid it, and so on. For instance, there are many different classes of wheat, and the Minneapolis wheat futures market is a specific derivative of the hard red spring wheat, HRS, physical market. So only HRS wheat can be delivered to honor a Minneapolis wheat futures contract at expiration. Not hard red winter wheat, HRWW, or soft red winter wheat, SRW, or soft white winter wheat, SWW. Meanwhile, the Chicago wheat futures market is a derivative of the more general feed wheat physical market, with less stringent specifications about the class, quality, and protein level of the wheat that can be delivered to warehouses at expiration. Only about 25% of the total U.S. wheat crop is hard red spring wheat, so it makes sense that the MGEX handles only a fraction of the wheat futures trade that the CBOT does. However, higher-protein spring wheat, which can be used for human baking, 
responds to a different supply and demand situation than the general livestock feed wheat market does. So the MGEX's fraction of wheat futures trade is a reliable fraction, since they're the only ones who offer a contract to follow spring wheat prices specifically. And that's what they've been able to do. Rely on the need for an HRS-specific futures market to support the contracts since 1883. They decided to close down their open outcry pit, where the traders physically stood on the floor and traded amongst each other, in 2008, because they didn't have the volume to make that economically efficient. So now all the MGEX contracts get traded exclusively as electronic trades, but that works fine. An exchange doesn't need people shouting at each other; it just needs a mechanism for all the buyers and all the sellers to have their orders seen in the same place at the same time, and for all the trades to get matched up fairly. Computers are great for that. Eventually, the Chicago Exchange came to the same conclusion, and its open outcry trading pits closed in July 2015. Old pit traders would tell you about the advantages of hearing rumors on the floor, or the ways they could use their own physicality to make better trades in the pits than they can on a computer. But that's mostly just something for old pit traders to reminisce about. It's not particularly relevant to most grain market participants today. In fact, it could be argued that the markets are more egalitarian and globally fair now that there is no advantage to be gained by having someone physically located in Chicago making paper trades. Actually, trading futures. If you don't need to use futures to represent a physical grain position in a delivery warehouse someday, then you, like almost everybody else in the market, We'll be trading those 99% of futures contracts, which never get held to expiration and exercised for delivery. Typically, if you take a futures position, you'll get out of it, either for profit or for a loss, before the clock runs out. With that in mind, you can concentrate on simply profiting in the futures market without fussing with physical grain at all. It's easy to do, really. Open a brokerage account. If you think the price of a grain is going to increase in a certain time frame, buy that futures contract and then sell it for a higher price later. Collect your profit. If you think the price of a grain is going to decrease in a certain time frame, sell that futures contract. Yes, you can commit to selling something in the future that you don't currently own at the present, and then buy it back for a lower price later. Profit. But the tricky part, of course, becomes evident if the price doesn't do what you thought it was going to do. The opposite of profit occurs, and it can happen much faster than investors who are accustomed to stocks and bonds are usually prepared for. This heightened risk exists partially because commodity prices tend to be more volatile than the prices of other financial assets, but mostly because of the nature of how futures trading is financed. Trading commodities is a highly leveraged activity, and that requires a steep learning curve for the typical investor. Leverage allows traders to use a relatively small amount of capital to make relatively larger trades, which we'll discuss more deeply in the next section. Let's say a speculator, Bob, read somewhere that he should diversify his portfolio into commodities. But decides the most he is willing to risk on commodity trades 
is a couple thousand dollars. Let's further stipulate that in order to invest in commodities, he would have to buy the actual physical stuff on the cash market. If corn was priced at three dollars per bushel, Bob's two thousand dollars wouldn't buy more than six hundred seventy bushels on the cash market, and that's not even enough to fill a semi truck. It's not even enough to feed fifty cows for a week, and if the price rose twenty percent, a pretty good rally by most investors' standards. To three dollars and sixty cents per bushel, Bob would profit exactly twenty percent, going from two thousand dollars to two thousand four hundred dollars. However, if Bob put about two thousand and two hundred fifty dollars toward the purchase of corn futures, that is, if he traded in financial contracts representing corn rather than trading physical corn itself. He could gain exposure to fifteen thousand bushels worth of corn market movement. If the price went up twenty percent, his profit would equal the profit of fifteen thousand bushels gaining sixty cents per bushel. So his account would go from twenty-two fifty to eleven thousand two hundred fifty dollars. Therefore, leverage would allow Bob to turn a twenty percent market rally into a four hundred percent profit. Margin. This is possible because the futures exchange allows traders to buy and sell full-sized futures contracts without having to provide cash for the total value of those contracts up front. They assume, because of statistical probabilities, that corn at five dollars per bushel is unlikely to gain or fall more than fifty cents per week, for instance. So, for a five thousand bushel corn contract, they may only ask for two thousand five hundred dollars of good faith money up front from the trader of that contract. If and when the price moves farther than fifty cents per bushel, the exchange will require the trader to put more money in his account to cover the position's losses. The money itself is called margin. You have to provide initial margin for a futures trading position when you first enter a trade, and if the trade starts to lose more than that initial amount, the exchange will require maintenance margin beyond that initial amount. If you fail to provide it, they can close out your trade and hold you liable for any financial losses. The actual margin rates are set by the exchanges. But your brokerage firm, who tracks your trading capital and acts as the go-between for you and the exchange, may ask for more than the exchange's guideline requirements. The requirements themselves can change at any time. The CME, for instance, uses a calculation called Standard Portfolio Analysis of Risk (SPAN) to determine how much value is at risk in any given trade. Depending on the underlying value of the assets being traded and the volatility of those markets, this calculation involves a lot of complex statistics about what-if scenarios. They want to have enough capital on hand to cover the potential losses of 99% of all possible market outcomes. As of late 2017, the initial margin requirement for a 5,000 bushel corn contract is $750. The initial margin for a 5,000 bushel soybean contract is $1,900. Soybeans are more expensive per bushel than corn, and the initial margin for a 5,000 bushel wheat contract 
through the Chicago Board of Trade is $1,100. If the exchange observes greater volatility in these markets and starts to calculate it needs more capital to be safe from traders defaulting on losing positions, it can and does change those requirements frequently at its own discretion. Sometimes an increase in the margin requirements will wash out some investors in the market and spark a surge of liquidation. For instance, if Bob was holding a long corn futures position and the exchange had $750 of his money effectively held in escrow, that's the margin requirement, and then one morning it announced that the margin requirement was raised from $750 to $1,363, that might exceed the limit Bob was willing to risk on commodities. Maybe he really couldn't afford to cough up the extra margin. In any case, Bob, and a lot of other traders, would all decide they must get out of their corn futures positions. When this happens to large funds with large positions in large enough numbers in any given market, their mass exodus can be quite influential to the underlying price. So margin requirements are important to keep track of not only because they dictate what kind of positions you yourself can take and what kind of portfolio you can build, but also because changes in these requirements can trigger big market movements. Daily Trading Limits Exchanges also set artificial limits on how far the prices of their commodity futures can move during any one trading session but these decisions must be approved by the CFTC. For instance, corn futures prices aren't presently allowed to move more than 25 cents per day. Soybean futures can't change more than 70 cents per day. CME wheat futures can't change more than 30 cents per day. And MGEX wheat futures can't change more than 60 cents per day. These values, too, can change over time. When I first started working as a grain market analyst, the daily price limit on corn was 20 cents per bushel, but it has been as high as 40 cents. If the price of corn futures closes one day at $4.00 per bushel, and the next day the market opens and everybody frantically wants to buy corn at any price, and very few people are willing to sell corn near $4.00 per bushel, then the price at the exchange will move higher and higher. Buyers will first buy from all the sellers willing to buy at $4 and one quarter penny. And then once there are no more willing sellers at that price, buyers will have to buy at $4 and one cent, then $4 and five cents, then $4 and 10 cents, then $4 and 20 cents, then $4 25. If no one's willing to sell at 425 either, because they believe the market is so bullish as to warrant a true value of $4.30 corn or $4.60 corn, there will just be a massive backlog of willing buyers stuck at the $4.25 level. Even if someone were willing to sell at, say, $4.26, and lots of people were willing to buy at $4.26, the exchange itself wouldn't allow the transaction at $4.26. That's because of that daily trading limit, which is meant to tamp down irrational market behavior and give everyone some time to think it over before the next trading session begins. On a locked limit up 
or locked limit down day, traders may be able to analyze other derivative markets and get a sense of what price is truly justified by market sentiment. But if that price level is anywhere more than 25 cents away from where the market closed on the previous day, no more trades will be transacted on the exchange beyond that price that day. It's true that an exchange's general goal is to enable efficient price discovery. But in these instances, they and the CFTC have decided it's okay to sacrifice efficient price discovery for one day in order to prevent otherwise illogical, frantic market movements. They do give a nod to the need for relatively faster market movements when a contract is in delivery. Price movement is unlimited during those last two weeks of a contract's life. Or on the days immediately after futures contracts get locked limit up or locked limit down. In most grain markets, they change the daily limit the next day to 150% of the original limit. So, if Minneapolis wheat is locked limit down one day, that is if it loses 60 cents off its price, the exchange recognizes that this signals something drastic has changed about the market's supply and demand, and that traders may need extra room to find a new fair price. The next day, wheat futures would be allowed to fall or gain as much as 90 cents. If they got locked limit down again, then on the third day, they'd be allowed to fall as much as $1.35, and so on. Maximum Theoretical Loss Bear in mind that if you were holding a long wheat futures position, that is if you'd bought one wheat futures contract, and the market locked limit down three days in a row, you would lose $14,250 in three days, and there would be absolutely nothing you could do about it. That's $0.60 cents plus $0.90 cents plus $1.35 makes $2.85, and $2.85 per bushel times 5,000 bushels equals that $14,250. When a market is locked limit down, no one is willing to buy the futures within the day's price range, which means even if you wanted to sell your contract to get out of the market and cut your losses, no one would be willing to buy it from you and offset your position. You'd be stuck. And at the time you entered the trade, you probably thought you only had $3,038 at risk, which was the initial margin requirement for a wheat futures contract. In fact, if you have a long futures position, your theoretical maximum loss is the entire value from the price where you entered the trade all the way down to zero. Presumably, grain futures will never be worth zero dollars, but you must be willing and able to account for all that theoretical loss. If you have a short futures position, your maximum loss is technically infinite. Fortunately, these locked limit moves don't happen very frequently. But the possibility must be mentioned for you to be fully aware of how the futures markets function, and any reputable futures broker will mention that risk to you. When it comes to your maximum theoretical loss, think of it like a nuclear disaster. There may be a very low probability of it happening, but if it does happen, the results would be disastrous. Leverage. 
So there are no guarantees in commodity futures trading. Leverage can be a wonderful thing when it allows you to boost your gains from a relatively small investment, but it also means your losses can accrue faster than you can mitigate them. To help clarify this concept of leverage, let's say that instead of buying a corn futures contract, our example speculator Bob had just bought those 400 bushels of physical corn with his initial $2,000. The worst thing that could happen to him would be the theft or destruction of that corn, after which it would be worth nothing. His investment would go from being worth two thousand dollars to being worth zero dollars. Not pleasant, but a far cry from a leveraged loss of more than three times his initial investment. Therefore, it's wise to diversify your futures trades and set limits for each individual trade. For one thing, you should have enough capital in your trading account to prevent you from getting totally wiped out, and enough so that the margin requirement for any one trade is only a percentage of your trading capital. For another thing, if you can have several positions in different markets trading at any given point in time, you will diversify your exposure and limit the chances of losing capital overall. The leverage available through the margined investment structure of the futures markets can be your best friend or your worst enemy. But I don't want to discourage you from using futures to accomplish your goals, whatever they are. There are strategies to manage your risk, but you might still conclude that Bob's $2,000 trading limit really isn't very practical from a risk management standpoint. Because of margin requirements, he's basically stuck in one position at a time, with no extra cushion of capital if that one position goes awry. So he better be awfully sure about what he's doing. Similarly, if Stan Clark at Verandry Capital Management was trading with one hundred million dollars of capital, you might conclude it would be foolhardy for him to put all of that in a short soybeans position. But perhaps putting two million dollars at risk—that's two percent of his risk capital—wouldn't be out of line. There's no hard and fast rule about what proportion of your portfolio is wise to risk on any one trade, but the concept needs to be a consideration for all traders, no matter how large their account. Futures contract design. At this point, I hope I've represented the function of the grain futures markets and some of the theory behind how money can be made or lost in these markets. But a good, careful trader will still want more details about the actual stuff being traded before he puts money at risk. Remember, if you buy or sell futures contracts, you won't actually be buying or selling kernels of grain. Rather, you'll be buying or selling the right to financially participate in the derivative gains or losses in grain prices. Beyond the philosophical differences, grain futures contracts are otherwise pretty similar to forward contracts, in that they represent a price for some upcoming grain transaction. Instead of taking place between one buyer and one seller with unique details. Futures are traded on an exchange full of many willing buyers and sellers to achieve one consolidated official price for a commodity, and because of that, futures contracts must be highly standardized. Joe Smith wrote a forward contract to sell twenty-four thousand bushels of corn to his local elevator at harvest for four dollars and fifty cents per bushel. 
But if, at the same moment, his neighbor Lindsay sold 100,000 bushels to the ethanol plant for $4.60 per bushel, what does that mean for the price of corn? Maybe the ethanol plant was giving her a better bid for the efficiency of handling a larger quantity of bushels. Maybe the elevator was shading its bid to Joe Smith because his corn always tends to have a lot of foreign material in it. It's impossible to compare two highly individualized cash sales contracts and glean one true market price from them. The commodity futures exchanges remove that challenge by making every transaction a trade for the exact same standardized contract. Here are the details of what that futures contract looks like for corn. It's 5,000 bushels of number two yellow corn traded via the CME Globex electronic platform during normal trading hours and settled by physical delivery. Note how that standardization, it's always 5,000 bushels of good corn, removes the need for a lot of the detail we explored with the cash contracts. No contract terms or discussion of weights and grades is required. A delivery point is implied, but it's always the same for every grain futures contract. The exchange also has a discount schedule to handle variations in the quality of corn that could be physically delivered to a warehouse. That is number one yellow corn, which has less damage or foreign material than number two yellow corn, receives a 1.5 cent premium per bushel, and number three yellow corn, which is a lower quality product, receives a 1.5 cent discount at delivery. But that's a non-issue to 99.9% of the people who trade these contracts. If you want to trade a corn futures contract, all you need to know is that it represents 5,000 bushels of very basic standard field corn at a particular point in the future. Futures Timeframes the upcoming time frame in question depends on which futures contract you trade. Each year, there will be a March corn futures contract and a May, a July, a September, and a December corn futures contract, each of which stop trading on the business day prior to the 15th calendar day of the contract month. So there's no need for individually specifying delivery dates or locations for each trade. It's all standardized. And because these futures contracts are being traded through a centralized exchange, the buyer and the seller of any given contract are anonymous to each other. It doesn't matter who's doing the buying and who's doing the selling. It just matters that one trading party is willing to pay a certain amount of money for the underlying asset during the specified time frame, and that another trading party would be willing to provide the asset at that price at that time. Grain futures contracts all have a similar design. Wheat on all the U.S. exchanges and soybeans and oats are also traded in 5,000 bushel lots. I always recommend referring directly to an exchange's contract specifications before you start trading something, just so you know what it is you're getting into. Barley, for instance, which is a cereal grain similar to wheat and oats, is traded on the Ice Canada Exchange in lots of 20 metric tons each, equivalent to about 920 bushels. Contracts might also trade in different time frames than you are expecting. 
Although corn and wheat each have March, May, July, September, and December contracts, soybeans trade in different time frames. Here is a rundown of the abbreviation conventions for grain futures contracts. Each calendar month has a corresponding contract month symbol, which is just a single letter. For instance, January is F, February is G, March is H, April is J, May is K, June is M, July is N, August is Q, September is U, October is V, November is X, and December is Z. So corn futures contracts, which trade in March, May, July, September, and December, have abbreviations like CH number, CK number, CN number, CU number, or CZ number. And soybean futures, which trade in January, March, May, July, August, September, and November, have abbreviations like SF number representing January soybeans. March soybeans are represented by SH number. May soybeans are represented by SK number. July soybeans are SN number. August soybeans are SQ number. September soybeans are SU number. And November soybeans are SX number. That system seems bizarre until you get used to it. We couldn't use a one-letter J abbreviation for June, obviously, because it wouldn't be distinct from a one-letter J abbreviation for July. So the futures trading industry has developed this alphabetical one-letter system instead. CZ8 becomes the abbreviation for corn, that's C, futures, traded with a December, Z, 2018, 8, CZ8, expiration date. WH9 is the abbreviation for March 2019 wheat futures. MWK9 is the abbreviation for May 2019 Minneapolis Grain Exchange wheat futures. And KWN9 is the abbreviation for July 2019 KC wheat futures. Soybean byproducts trade in the same months as soybean futures, so BOQ9 is the abbreviation for August 2019 soybean oil futures, and SMQ9 represents soybean meal futures with the same expiration. The ICE futures that track CBOT expiration months have their own specific abbreviations, as do all futures contracts for all markets. The collection of active futures contracts isn't just limited to one year at a time. There can be 14 or more corn futures contracts offered by the exchange at any given moment, stretching across several years, depending on the volume and demand. In January of 2001, for instance, the first corn futures contract that would have reached expiration was the March 2001 contract, which would have been represented as CH1. Whenever a contract is the closest contract to its expiration date, it's called the front month futures contract. When the front month December 2000 contract expired, the March 2001 contract, CH1, became the front month contract. 
The front month contract may or may not always be the one with the most active open interest and daily trading volume. It usually is, but in the last few weeks before it expires, as the threat of physical delivery approaches, trading interest in the front month futures contract tends to dwindle and its prices can be choppy. Therefore, the CME uses a designated lead contract, that's the one with the most interest and volume, to establish the market's daily settlement prices. Charts showing a commodity's prices over a long period of time are typically constructed of a continuous series of front month prices. So the data points on a continuous front month chart could skip from listing the December contract's price at expiration on December 14th to listing the March contract's daily settlement price on December 15th. But this is still the best way, or really the only way, to show how the value of a commodity has changed across many years. You can trade any available contract month depending on what you are trying to accomplish. Obviously, farmers who know they will bring their grain to market during a certain time frame will hedge their sales using the futures contract with the expiration date closest to their intended marketing date. And end users who know they will need a certain amount of grain at a certain time will hedge their needs using the appropriate time frame. But investors who just want to go long in soybeans, for instance, have more leeway in selecting a contract. The front month contract almost always has the most open interest, that's the market's number of currently held contracts, and the most daily trading volume. So that can make it relatively easier to get an order filled at an advantageous price level. But if an investor intends to take a position in the futures market and hold it for many months, perhaps he just wants to initiate the position in a deferred contract to avoid racking up new transaction charges, commissions and fees, etc. every time one contract expires and he is forced to roll to the next contract. Rolling futures is the process of moving a futures position from one contract month to the next as a nearby expiration date approaches. When a large enough volume of this activity happens all at once, it can be a significant event for the market. In particular, index funds that place large amounts of investor money into set proportions of a basket of commodity futures roll their positions at specific periods of time. Let's use the S&P GSCI, previously known as the Goldman Sachs Commodity Index, as an example. Thousands of investors, asset managers, and financial institutions who've decided they want to diversify their portfolios with exposure to commodities have put billions of dollars directly into this index fund and others like it. The index fund uses that capital to take long positions, that is, to buy futures contracts, in various commodities like crude oil, unleaded gasoline, copper, gold, coffee, sugar, live cattle, and of course, the grains, oil seeds, and other agriculture products. A specific published weighting is designated to each commodity. In 2017, the GSCI structured itself to have almost 20% of its capital invested in agriculture commodities, and most of that position in corn, wheat, and soybeans, plus some coffee, sugar, cocoa, cotton, lean hogs, live cattle, and feeder cattle. For each dollar somebody invests in the GSCI, roughly five cents are tied to a long corn futures position, 
and the index's purpose is to always have 5% of its performance tied to the price of corn. By default, the GSCI takes those positions in the nearby futures month. But the nearby futures month is always eventually going to expire in a few months' time. Then what? Let's say that it's November 1st, and the GSCI is holding several thousand long December corn futures contracts. Well, the GSCI roll period is set as the fifth through the ninth business days of each month. So for any commodity contract they hold, which is set to expire in the following month, the index must roll their position forward. Between November 5th and November 9th, they will sell off all their long December corn futures and buy an equivalent number of March corn futures. They roll their December positions in November because if they waited until December 5th through 9th, the December contract would already be in its delivery period and the index would be at risk of being assigned receipt of millions of bushels of physical corn. Obviously, the concentrated selling activity in one nearby contract will put downward pressure on those prices, and the simultaneous buying activity in the next deferred contract will exert upward influence on those prices. So while the index rule doesn't reflect any change in market sentiment for the corn market in general, it certainly can move prices around. If on August 4th the September corn contract was priced at $5.00 per bushel and the December corn contract was priced at $5.15 per bushel, we would say the September to December spread was $0.15. Cents. By August 9th, assuming the index fund roll pressured the nearby contract lower and the deferred contract higher, Let's say September corn futures would be worth $4.95, and December corn futures would be worth $5.20. The spread between them would have widened from $0.15 cents to $0.25. Cents. Futures spreads. That's an incredibly exaggerated example. If the nearby corn spread ever actually did move $0.10 cents in five days, it would confound large sections of the market. More typically, grain spreads stay within a 2 to 4 cent range for their entire trading period, and for good reason. Notice how in this example I initially set the December corn futures price 15 cents higher than the September price. That was deliberate. Most commodities will tend to have higher deferred prices than the nearby price to reimburse the owners for the costs of storing the physical commodity through a given period of time. This is especially true of the grains, which are only produced annually and therefore must be stored as many as 12 months before new supply becomes available. Commodities like crude oil, which is continually produced, also tend to have relatively higher futures prices as the contract months get more deferred, a situation that is known as contango or carry. Contango is usually the preferred term of energy traders or commodity speculators, but the grain industry calls its positive futures spread structure carry to reflect that we are talking about the costs of carrying the grain in storage from one month to the next. 
The example of 15 cents of carry between September and December is actually pretty realistic. That's three months of storing grain, so it amounts to five cents per month. A decent rule of thumb, but it's a changeable quantity based on sophisticated calculations. The opposite of contango is backwardation. That is, when the nearby futures contracts are priced higher than deferred contracts. If November crude oil was worth eighty dollars per barrel, and December crude oil was worth seventy-nine dollars and eighty-five cents per barrel, that market would be in backwardation. But again, in the grain markets, a different terminology is used. If there is no carry and the spreads between the futures contracts are actually negative, for instance, March corn at five dollars and May corn at four dollars and ninety-five cents, we say the market is inverted. An inverted grain futures market is a sign of incredible near-term bullishness, usually because of a supply shortage. It's implying that the market won't pay to have the grain stored away for a few months because it so urgently requires the grain now. Grain futures markets also become inverted when they expect a glut of new supply at some point in the future, for instance, harvest. So it's not uncommon some years to see July or September corn futures be priced significantly higher than December corn futures, because billions of bushels of newly harvested corn will be available by December. Old crop versus new crop: the difference between September futures and December futures can be summed up with more grain market terminology. In the spring and summer, nearby futures contracts like the May and July are trading the old crop of grain that was actually raised the previous summer and fall. More deferred contracts, like the ones that are tied to the upcoming December timeframe and the following March, etc., are trading the new crop of forthcoming grain. The spread between old crop and new crop prices is closely watched, but it's not always so clearly differentiated between September and December. There are some years when row crops get planted early in the spring, mature early, and then come to market as a new crop of grain early in the fall. In those years, September futures contracts can trade based on the market's sentiment for new crop supply and demand. The only really clear indicator of the spread between old crop and new crop grain is the July to December spread. Officially, the marketing year for corn and soybeans is September first to August thirty-first of each year. So every government projection you see for production and usage categories, like exports, is based on what is expected to happen during that time frame, rather than during a calendar year. The marketing year for wheat, which is harvested earlier than the row crops, is from July first to June thirtieth of each year. It's very important for you to know and keep track of which marketing year's futures you are trading. If you're a speculator trying to trade based on a fundamental supply and demand concern, the situation can be completely different from one crop year to the next. And if you're a farmer or end user using futures to hedge your cash position, the overall price movement of old crop futures can be wildly different from the price movement in new crop futures. So your hedges can totally fall apart if they're not placed in the appropriate futures month.
Abbreviations and Pricing Conventions You do need to think about the time frame you're trading, but it's not strictly critical for you to memorize the code letters used to represent each month of the year. It's mostly just the kind of lingo your broker may devolve into in an email. Bought 3CK2 at 6472, for instance, would mean 3 May 2012 corn futures contracts, equivalent to 15,000 bushels total, were bought at $6.47 and a quarter per bushel. Grain trades are transacted in quarters of a cent and often quoted in cents rather than dollars per bushel, so you might see the futures price represented in any of these various ways. $6.47 and a quarter could be written out as a fraction, or it could be written as 6.4725, or it could be written as 647 apostrophe 2. What are actually quarters of a cent are typically quoted as eighths of a cent, so 0, 2-eighths, 4-eighths, and 6-eighths are mathematically equivalent to 0, 1-quarter, 1-half, and 3-quarters of a cent. Knowing that, and knowing the contract symbol for whichever commodity futures market it is you want to trade, will make your life easier when you use trading software. Because each software package is different, you would probably have to relearn the whole mess all over again if you switch to a new system. Rather than lay out for you what the symbols are on the software I use, I will just recommend you get familiar with your own and always be conscious of whether you're entering the correct number of digits. You don't want to offer corn at 64.7 cents or buy corn at 6,472 cents. The Futures Trading Experience It was hot. Too hot to be outside doing anything, and lately Joe's trips to scout his fields had just depressed him. The corn ears were stubby and misshapen from uneven pollination, and the flowering soybeans were probably running out of soil moisture now that the weather had switched back to a dry pattern in August. He had laid awake half the night with a pounding heartbeat and a sick feeling in the pit of his stomach as he added up the various rent checks and bank loans and equipment payments that would all come due before the end of the year. If the crops didn't perform and the money didn't come from the crops, where was it going to come from? Then when he turned on his computer in the morning and looked at the futures prices, they seemed outrageously cheap. Didn't anybody in Chicago realize the crop was burning up out here? There would be money to be made with that knowledge. Joe was just sure of it. So he called his broker and told him to buy five December corn contracts and five November soybean contracts. Altogether, these trades would require $13,250 of upfront margin money, which Joe intended to pay with a check from his farm's operating loan. There was a lot of sputtering on the other end of the phone line. Phrases like, quote, never a legitimate hedge for a farmer to go long, and do you realize how much extra risk you're exposing yourself to? But Joe held his ground. Just make the trade. And five minutes later, the broker sent an email with the fills. 
bot 5 CZ2 at 517 apostrophe 2 AV and bot 5 SX2 at 1178 apostrophe 4 AV. Shortly thereafter, some bearish export news about a slowing Chinese economy hit the market and grain prices started dropping. By the end of the day, corn was 20 cents lower and soybeans had dropped 33 cents. Joe logged back onto his brokerage's website and noted that he had racked up a $13,000 loss in a matter of a few hours. Looking out the kitchen window at 80 acres of soybeans leaning sideways in the hot wind, he didn't know whether to start drinking Pepto-Bismol or whiskey. Regardless of the wisdom of any particular trading idea, all you really need to put a trade in action is that idea, a brokerage account, and some cash. The electronic or person-to-person -person access to the trading exchange can easily be acquired through a brokerage firm who will make the trades on your behalf and be reimbursed via commission. And it's easy enough to find such a firm. There is a whole population of brokers out there eager to open new accounts. As far as selecting the right broker, well, that's a different matter. To some degree, concerns about counterparty risk should also be on market participants' minds when choosing a brokerage firm. You can conduct some due diligence on a firm's status as a licensed market participant, particularly through the NFA, or National Futures Association's, online Background Affiliation Status Information Center, abbreviated BASIC, which details a firm's history of regulatory and arbitration actions. But that alone won't guarantee a futures broker or brokerage firm won't engage in unethical behavior or outright fraud at some point in the future. The misdeeds of a brokerage firm could range anywhere from encouraging a retired school teacher into inappropriately risky trades to completely misplacing billions of dollars that should have been in segregated customer accounts. That last example was actually done by a previously well-respected brokerage firm, MF Global, in 2011. Those rare but disastrous examples of counterparty risk have motivated some market participants to diversify their futures brokerage accounts among more than one firm. Consider any large grain trading company that may have a positive or negative balance of millions of dollars in futures hedges at the end of each market day. If any one brokerage firm goes bankrupt overnight, it would be best to have a minimal amount of one's own cash in that firm's possession. And brokerage accounts don't pay interest on their customer's capital, which is segregated away from the company's own capital, so there is no particular motivation to keep any more cash stuffed away in a brokerage account than is necessary to cover margin costs. Typically, however, the relationship between a futures market participant and his broker is characterized by trust. Joe Smith, for instance, is busy fixing machinery and checking his crops and doing the day-to-day -day business of farming, so he can't be expected to spend hours each day observing and researching the movements of the grain futures markets, even though their movement does have profound impacts on his farming business's revenue. Therefore, he relies on and trusts his broker to be educated about the goings-on of the grain markets at any point in time. 
Equally, his broker trusts him to be financially accountable for his trades. Brokerage firms must establish a legal and ethical framework with their customers before opening an account. New account applications will always ask for a lot of detailed personal information from a prospective client, like their annual income and net worth. This has less to do with the brokerage firm wanting to know how much business they could reasonably expect from the client, and more to do with guiding the broker to make appropriate recommendations for the individual. Here's a sample of the language that is shouted in all caps in a brokerage's risk disclosure document. It is meant to discourage people from committing more money to commodity trading than they can afford to lose. Quote, the risk of loss in trading commodities can be substantial. You should therefore carefully consider whether such trading is suitable for you in light of your financial condition. If you purchase or sell a commodity future or sell a commodity option, you may sustain a total loss of the initial margin funds and any additional funds that you deposit with your broker to establish or maintain your position. If the market moves against your position, you may be called upon by your broker to deposit a substantial amount of additional margin funds on short notice in order to maintain your position. If you do not provide the required funds within the prescribed time, your position may be liquidated at a loss and you will be liable for any resulting deficit in your account. Under certain market conditions, you may find it difficult or impossible to liquidate a position. This can occur, for example, when the market makes a limit move. The high degree of leverage that is often obtainable in commodity trading can work against you as well as for you. The use of leverage can lead to large losses as well as gains. This brief statement cannot disclose all the risks and other significant aspects of the commodity markets. End quote. And of course, there's the classic quote, past performance is not necessarily indicative of future results. End quote. Before those kinds of risks are faced, a broker needs to know whether or not a client will be able to financially handle them. Thus, the inquiries about income, net worth, and ability to commit funds for a long period of time. And also, whether or not a client will be able to psychologically and emotionally handle the worst-case scenarios. It's helpful to know how much previous experience a potential client may have had with trading futures, or even if they've had some experience in the stock market. A lot of the invasive questioning and persnickety capital handling procedures are also related to the brokerage firm's anti-money laundering legal obligations. For instance, to send initial margin money into your account, you might not write the check directly to your broker, depending on how that brokerage firm is registered with the CFTC. If a firm or person is participating in the futures markets on behalf of clients, it falls into one or more of these registration categories. Futures Commission Merchants, FCMs. An FCM is a firm that is set up to handle futures orders from customers and process those orders on the various futures exchanges. They also handle customers' margin money and the proceeds or losses from their trades, so they must keep highly detailed ledgers of all the trades they handle for the CFTC to review, 
and they must also provide daily statements to each individual customer. Basically, all of the prime brokerage houses who participate on the futures exchanges are registered as FCMs. Introducing brokers, IBs. An introducing broker is focused on communication with clients and accepts their orders to buy or sell futures, but the IB itself doesn't execute those trades at the exchange. Rather, it outsources that function to an FCM. The IB also doesn't play any direct role in the handling of client capital. That too is done by an FCM. Commodity trading advisors (CTAs). A CTA not only handles futures trades on behalf of clients, it may also charge those clients directly for giving advice on what trades to make. Commodity pool operators (CPOs). A CPO amasses funds from a number of participants to be aggregated and invested in commodity futures and options trades. Sometimes this is done under the framework of a limited partnership, an LP. Associated persons (APs). An AP is any individual who is involved in handling customers and customer orders in the futures market, on behalf of a registered FCM. IB, CTA, or CPO. As an example, the broker Joe Smith called to make his corn and soybean trade may have been some guy registered as an AP with an IB doing business through an FCM who has direct participation at the CME, all of which are registered with the NFA and the CFTC. When Joe, the customer, wants to place a futures trade, he calls his broker. But the organization that actually handles his trading capital and shepherds the order through the exchange and sends Joe a statement at the end of the day could be a separate organization, a large international bank, an independent firm that specializes in clearing financial trades, or perhaps even a large grain company that has diversified into financial trading as well. Back to selecting which firm or broker to trust with your business. Maybe you'll base your decision on a referral. Maybe you'll select one from a list of firms on an exchange website. Maybe you'll hear a broker be quoted on the radio someday and like the way he communicates. Maybe you'll just sign up with the broker who is geographically closest to you. Although beyond the building of trust and rapport, customers and brokers can easily get by without any face-to-face -face interactions. You'll find most of your transactions being done via the telephone or with well-documented internet communication. However, and with whomever you choose to gain access to exchange-traded futures contracts, the actual experience of making trades can be as simple or as complex, as laid-back or as electrifying as you choose. There is a whole range of tools and strategies you can use or forego. All depending on what kind of trades you want to make. Making confident trades. Bob Albany's brother-in-law had spent the entire Christmas dinner bragging about doubling his money by trading commodities. He recounted each natural gas call spread with excruciating detail, each platinum gold spread with the glee of a savant. 
you would have thought he was Warren Buffett taking questions at the annual Berkshire Hathaway shareholders meeting, except no one was asking him any questions. The man was an assembly line worker at a light bulb factory, for heaven's sake. Still, even though Bob was pretty sure his wife's brother had conveniently left out a few stories about failed trades, the man's evangelism did have a ring of truth about it. So for several months, Bob had pondered the idea. He envisioned himself becoming so filthy rich from clever commodity trades that he could start his own law firm and quit working with his obnoxious partners. Then he started setting aside little bits of cash to be the seed money for his account. Then he spent many hours trying to convince his wife that commodity trading really was philosophically distinct from gambling. Investors have a reasonable way to predict an outcome based on supply and demand. Speculators serve a valid market purpose. They provide hardworking farmers with a way to avoid risk. Finally, he woke up on his fiftieth birthday and decided he was going to go for it. He called his brother-in-law's broker and set up an account. He went to the library and checked out five different books on technical analysis. Those books convinced him he needed some fancy charting software, so he went online and purchased a rather obscenely expensive monthly subscription service. He signed up for newsletters and e-magazines. Every time he saw a new trading idea referenced, he'd build another chart and see how it performed hypothetically over the next few weeks. Finally, he was ready for some day trading. He'd buy or sell a few coffee contracts each morning and try to skin a small profit when the five-minute chart reached a resistance level, or exit at a loss when it fell through support. All the while, with his heart throbbing and adrenaline coursing through every cell of his body, slowly he developed some intuition for the idiosyncrasies of various markets: cotton, live cattle, wheat. He lost his shirt trading oats one week. Who the heck knew what made oats move or win or why? Whether his net result at the end of the year was going to end up positive or negative, Bob had certainly discovered a good way to suck up a lot of time, distracting him from his boring old lawyering work. At the most basic level, the tools one absolutely needs for futures trading are negligible. I suppose one could initiate trades with nothing more than a pencil, paper, and a postage stamp. Dear broker, please place a limit order to buy ten corn contracts at five dollars or better. Certainly, it's not uncommon for someone to conduct all their futures trading business over the telephone, with nothing better to track the market's movements than the intermittent updates on AM farm radio channels. But there are other tools available. Market access, especially for those who are particularly sensitive about the time it takes to get an order filled, or who expect to be making many orders each day, it could make sense to use a trading software application to directly enter your own electronic orders. Anyone using trading software to directly enter trades, rather than routing it through a human broker. Will want to be really, really careful about the details of each trade he enters. There are no do-overs for fat finger typos, like selling fifty-five contracts instead of five contracts, or communicating a willingness to buy soybeans for fifty dollars per bushel instead of fifteen dollars per bushel. 
However, each brokerage's trading software will likely have its own style of double-checking orders or preventing outrageous mistakes from occurring. For instance, an FCM probably won't even allow somebody with $5,000 in their account to enter a 55-lot trade. In any case, the time it takes to go through the training or introductions to your trading software will probably pay for itself in prevented errors. It will also help you figure out the trading symbols for the markets you intend to trade, which may vary from one software package to the next, and the applications for all the different types of orders you may use. The two most common types of orders are market orders and limit orders. A market order is filled as quickly as possible at the best price available, whatever price that may be. For instance, if you see corn trading at $5.00 per bushel and enter a market order to buy corn, it's theoretically possible that you end up owning a futures contract at $5.05 per bushel, or wherever, if that was the lowest offer available at the moment when the exchange matched up your buy order with someone else's sell order. A limit order, on the other hand, is filled only at a specified price or better. So if you had placed a limit order to buy corn at $5.00, you would own corn futures if and only if the market trades that low and the exchange can match you up with someone willing to sell that low. If other market participants were suddenly willing to sell at $4.99 and a half, it's theoretically possible for your $5 limit order to get filled at that more advantageous price. But it's also possible for your limit order to never get filled at all, because the market never moves that low, and therefore for you to lose out on the opportunity to be long corn. The other type of order you really want to understand is a stop order. If and only if a market reaches a designated price, a stop order converts into a market order and executes a trade for you. It's called a stop order because it's typically used to exit losing positions, although you can use them to conditionally enter positions. Consider if you have that long corn position at $5.00 and you're only willing to risk a 50 cent loss. It's impractical for you to sit and watch the market every second of every day and night. So you could place a stop order at $4.50 to sell your position, at a loss, if the market falls that low. The danger of a stop order is that the market could be falling in fast market conditions, and your sell stop order, which turns into a market order to sell once corn hits $4.50, could theoretically get filled at $4.49 or $4.45 or wherever. So there is also such a thing as a stop limit order. A stop limit order at 450 would turn into a limit order if and only if the market hit that price. The danger there, of course, is that the market could trade right through the level of your limit order and it might never get filled. Much less common order types include MOO orders, market on open orders, which are market orders at the very start of a trading session. MOC orders, market on close orders, which are market orders at the close of a trading session. SCO, stop close orders. 
MIT orders, market if touched orders, or TAS, trading at settlement orders. TAS orders are a relatively new but useful feature in the CME Group's agricultural futures markets. They allow futures to be bought or sold at whatever the day's final settlement price will be, or awfully close to it, which is useful for elevators who know they will be purchasing physical grain over the weekend while futures trading, and therefore futures hedging, will be unavailable. Those weekend transactions will take place based on whatever the Friday settlement price was, so it's nice to be hedged at that price. A very important detail to specify when placing orders is how long you want that order to be sitting around at the exchange. If you're willing to buy corn at $5, however long it takes for the market to reach that level, you need to make sure your limit order gets marked as a GTC order a good till cancelled order. The default may be for an order to just be entered as a day order, only good for that trading session and expiring at the session's close. Other duration designations include a GTD order, good till date order, that will stay at the exchange until a specified date. An FAK order, fill and kill order that will execute as many contracts as possible at a certain price and cancel the rest of the order if the full quantity of desired contracts can't be filled at that price. And an FOK, fill or kill order, that will either get an entire order filled immediately or cancel the order if it can't be immediately filled. Data. Executing the order is but a small part of a successful trade. The most important part is developing the original trading idea. How you choose to develop that idea will start to segregate you into one of the two schools of commodities traders, technical traders and fundamental traders. Technical analysis of the commodity markets is the practice of evaluating past activity in a market to identify patterns that may predict future price movements. As a very basic example, a technical analyst could look at a series of daily prices over the past few weeks, notice the trend of those prices has been moving higher, and choose to buy assets in the market on the expectation that the trend will continue. Someone who wants to use technical analysis to develop trading ideas will rely greatly on charts, and if he doesn't want to spend hours of his life creating pen and paper charts by hand, he'll therefore need to find a source of good price charts. The easiest way to find the price of commodity futures would be to go directly to the source, the futures exchange. So to find grain futures prices in the United States, a visit to the CME Group's website is a good first step. In their agriculture category, you'll see the entire list of futures contracts that they clear, and clicking on corn, for instance, will get you a table that shows something like this. Month, DS 17. Last, 352 apostrophe 0. Change, negative 0 apostrophe 6. Prior, 352 apostrophe 6. Open, 352 apostrophe 6. High, 353 apostrophe 2. Low, 351 apostrophe 2. Volume, 
14,747. Updated, 813.06. With that data repeated for each contract available. This is all the basic data available, but it may also be displayed in charts. A basic bar chart will represent each time period on the chart, each day, week, month, or perhaps each 5-minute or 15-minute segment of trade, as a vertical line with its top at the highest price level traded during that period, its bottom at the lowest price level traded during that period, a little horizontal dash to the left at the price level where the trade opened the time period, and a little horizontal dash to the right at the price level where the trade closed the time period. There are other types of charts, a simple line chart from one closing price to the next, or a Japanese candlestick chart. But a bar chart is the industry default, and that's what will automatically come up on the CME's free website. Note, however, that the CME only releases this data for free with a 10-minute delay. Several trading websites or commercial grain companies also pull the free data from the exchange and offer it to you on the internet with a 10-minute delay. If your trading plan relies on more urgent information or more advanced charting techniques, you'll have to either pay for real-time data from a website or get yourself a subscription to more serious charting software. The first place to ask for charting software would probably be through your brokerage, but a review of any trading industry magazine or online forum is going to quickly bring up some advertisements for trading software packages. The package you choose will depend on how much you want to spend and what you're trying to accomplish, so try a free demo of several packages to see which software works best with your own style. Once you have that software, you'll be well on your way to doing technical analysis of the commodity markets. Entire books have been written about technical analysis techniques, so I won't retread a worn path here, but I'll list a few basic techniques to give you an idea of what this style of analysis is all about. For the record, all of these techniques could be done with a pencil and some graph paper, but to generate technical trading signals in a timely manner, Today's traders typically let a computer do the charting. The generation of a buy or sell signal is the end goal of any technical analysis technique. A moving average, for instance, charts the average of a number of past prices. For instance, a 50-day moving average would take the past 50 daily price points, repeating the averaging function each successive day, alongside the chart of prices themselves. This is done to make trends more clear, and technical analysts believe trading signals are generated when prices fall above or below a moving average, or when one moving average line crosses another. A relative strength index, RSI, is similarly charted over time to show how a market's trend and momentum may be changing, but instead of being a simple average of prices, it's an index of up days compared to down days. A stochastic oscillator is another technical analysis measurement of momentum, done by comparing the current market price to its recent range of prices. In addition to the movements of continuous lines on a chart, 
Technical analysis trading signals could also come from the formation of certain patterns on the charts themselves. The most obvious of these is a trend, which represents the general direction of a market. You can draw a trend line by connecting a series of steadily higher period lows, or steadily lower period highs. And if you want to trade with the trend, there's your signal. However, technical analysts tend to be most concerned with identifying changes in a trend, in order to sell when a trend hits its high point, or buy when a trend hits its low point. They believe a changing trend indication is signaled by particular formations, like an outside reversal. That's when a market trades both higher than the previous period's high and lower than the previous period's low, or a bull or bear flag formation. A chart's trend pausing horizontally after a nearly vertical flagpole was established, or a head and shoulders formation. That's a peak forming a left shoulder, followed by a higher peak forming a head, followed by a peak forming a right shoulder. There are countless other technical analysis studies one could conduct on a chart, but I'm already oversimplifying these. So if this is an area of interest for you, I recommend you find a book or website source to give you more details about chart formations or even the equations that underlie various technical indicators. The right charting software package will do all of this for you automatically, and you'll just have to figure out how far you trust the signals to build your trading ideas. Now, on the other hand, fundamental analysis of the commodity markets involves evaluating anything that can affect a commodity's supply or demand, and then predicting how changes in that information may affect price. It's Econ 101. If supply decreases, price increases. Generally speaking, if demand increases, price increases. Generally speaking, plus all the obligatory vice versas and ceteris paribuses. The philosophy of fundamental analysis is quite different than technical analysis. Whereas a technical analyst can develop a chart-based trading idea without even knowing the underlying asset being charted. A fundamental analyst is concerned with determining the inherent fair value of the asset, then deciding whether the current market level is underpriced or overpriced. It's essentially similar to value investing in the stock market, a la Warren Buffett or Benjamin Graham. Fundamental analysis is no less reliant on numbers than chart-based analysis. In fact, it is deeply driven by real statistics. Whereas a technical analyst will draw lines on a chart dictated by past price data alone, a fundamental analyst will be more likely to run rigorous multivariable regression analyses of historical production trends and the effect of one market's price on another market's demand elasticity. The power of fundamental analysis comes from correctly analyzing reliable data about supply and demand. For simplicity, we'll call it S and D. There are innumerable ways to measure and analyze the S and D data for any given commodity, and what's appropriate for one situation may not be appropriate elsewhere. But one benchmark metric that can show both supply and demand in relation to each other is a commodity's stocks-to-use ratio during a given time period.
That measures the ending inventory of the commodity as a percentage of the overall demand for that commodity. It requires some context. A ratio that may be indicative of very bullish tight demand of one commodity, say a 10% stocks to use ratio, may be a pretty typical or comfortable inventory level for another commodity. Knowing which S&D factors are legitimately bullish or bearish indicators of potential price movement is what fundamental analysis is all about, and to a large extent it just takes some experience in a particular market to examine those factors in their appropriate historical and seasonal context. In any case, a fundamental analyst needs only a limited reliance on price charts. To get a general idea of trend or to see historical prices in context, the free or low-cost chart sources may be good enough. If you're taking the time to read the sections of this book about the underlying mechanics of producing and moving real physical grain from supply points to demand points, presumably you're interested in fundamental analysis. Since I'm taking the time to write this book, it's also pretty safe to assume I fancy myself a fundamental analyst. I have my reasons for this, beyond the obvious romance of amber waves of grain. A lot of technical analysis is no more than hokum. There, I said it. And I say it with the confidence of someone who has been trained in sophisticated statistical analysis, the kind that can be used to show whether a trading result is repeatable and reliable over time. For a technical trader to pick an arbitrary series of numbers, the Fibonacci sequence, for instance, and expect market charts to behave according to those magic numbers or patterns can be proven, and has been proven, to be no better than random selection. This has been proven and widely accepted among traders in the equity markets since the 1960s, but for some reason, technical analysis has remained amazingly prevalent among commodity market pundits. Technical analysts' choices tend to perform no better than a 50-50 guess of either buy or sell, but they are rarely asked to backtest their programs and prove the reliability of their advice. Their advice could be based on any haphazard imagined pattern on any old chart, with no regard to what is really physically happening in a market. There are even people who use moon phases as a basis for technical analysis. Trading advice from these people should be viewed with as much seriousness as any astrologer's advice. However, I will admit this. In the sense that supply and demand can apply to the futures contracts themselves, not just to the underlying commodity, then there is some value to paying attention to the most mainstream technical indicators. Stochastic indicators actually measure changes in a trend's momentum, so I sometimes use them to indicate when a futures market may be attracting undue volumes of buy orders or sell orders made by human traders or human programmers who are inevitably driven by the strange vagaries of human behavior. Research on human behavior during market bubbles does suggest that there is at least one chart pattern, a bubble pattern, which has been known to reoccur in a predictable fashion. Anyway, if enough people in a market believe that a certain technical indicator dictates that the market should be bought or sold, 
then that belief itself may turn into a self-fulfilling prophecy. So it's important to keep track of what those traders are doing and to anticipate an onslaught of buying or selling interest. Possibly that's why there are so few books about fundamental analysis and so many books about technical analysis. A technical trader's magic number system only works if he can convince a lot of other people to use the same system. Let's consider the intersection of technical analysis, as it measures the volume and direction of market behavior, with fundamental analysis, a separate third school of trading called structural analysis. A trader could, for instance, develop a rigorous backtest to determine whether a certain technical analysis signal, for instance, a buy trigger when the market falls below its 50-day moving average, actually results in heavy buying activity. By statistically analyzing the significance of changes in market volume on the days when such signals occur, using data about which sectors of the market—is it commercial hedgers, hedge funds, swap dealers—is doing the most trading at a certain point in time, would be another way to drill the data about a market's structure. With that kind of analysis, a trader would really be analyzing the supply and demand of the derivative market. The futures contracts themselves, rather than the underlying commodity, so it would be similar to fundamental analysis, but it might also confirm the goals of some technical analysis. For example, fundamental analysis of the copper market might tell you if there was a real, actual shortage of copper in the world. Any company that was contractually committed to supply physical copper to its customers would face a short squeeze as it scrambled to pay increasingly exorbitant rates just to gain some ownership of any copper it could find anywhere. Structural analysis of a futures market, or an options market, stock market, or bond market, could tip you off that the same kind of short squeeze might occur in those derivative assets. Whether or not there really is a shortage of the underlying asset, if the front-month Minneapolis wheat contract, for instance, has only 100 open contracts in its last few days of trading before expiration, and most of those open positions are short positions, traders who have previously sold futures with the bearish idea that prices would eventually fall. Then those traders with long positions can squeeze the shorts by making higher and higher-priced offers, which the short traders, desperate to close out their futures positions before they're obligated to deliver physical wheat to Minnesota, would have to accept. Advisors. So if you get somebody telling you to short soybean oil because the five-day disparity ratio has crossed the accumulated swing index or something, well, maybe you'll want to use some caution. But to each their own, and there is definitely a population of people willing to seek out such advice, and a subsequent population of people willing to give it. Advice, along with market access and data. Is another item you can use to develop and execute trading ideas. Again, the simplest form of getting trading advice is to just take advantage of what's out there for free on the internet. There are online forums for futures traders and farmers, and there are a number of people willing to publicize their trading ideas on social media outlets. You won't have to try too hard to get on somebody's free e-newsletter or e-magazine distribution list. The trading ideas you'll glean from these sources will run the gamut, 
from technical signals to rumors of fundamental S&D changes, and from outrageously unwise to verifiably reasonable. But, as with most things, you get what you pay for. Therefore, there are a number of folks, some rather useless, some very insightful indeed, who charge a subscription fee to send you their opinions on the commodity markets and advice about what sorts of trades you should be making. Remember that anyone who's charging money for making specific trading advice has to be registered with the NFA as a Commodity Trading Advisor, CTA. So you have at least one avenue for doing due diligence on a newsletter peddler before sending them a check. The advisory service you choose will depend primarily on who you are. A farmer will want to seek out someone with knowledge and experience trading cash grains, because such an advisor will also be able to offer insight about timing the farmer's cash sales of grain, in addition to offering analysis of the market prices. A merchandiser working at an elevator or grain processing facility may not have to seek out any special advisor because his company probably already has a great deal of proprietary in-house knowledge of the local supply and demand situation. Very large grain companies keep their own staff of market analysts, and they may be some of the best in the business because they get private access to accumulated data about real grain inventories all over the country and all over the world, data which not even the USDA can provide. Smaller cash grain companies, however, if they want some outside opinion about the grain markets, have to seek out the same advisors as everybody else. By far, the easiest type of commodity advisor to find is one who will just offer a bullish or bearish opinion for speculators. These can still be newsletter writers, but of course, as you put increasing amounts of money into the commodity markets, you may need to seek out increasingly sophisticated advice. Somewhere between paying for a $50 newsletter to pick up a new short-term trading strategy once in a while, and paying somebody a $20 million bonus for managing your $1 billion proprietary fund, there is a way to get high-quality advice and direction for your commodities account by opening a managed futures account. Such an account would be much like any other futures trading account, run through the same brokerage structure but your capital would be directly controlled by a professional money manager, a commodity trading advisor, CTA. Managed futures are considered to be their own asset class nestled within the alternative investment universe, which means they are often used specifically to diversify a sophisticated investor's overall portfolio. Rather than risking 100% of his trading capital in the stock market, such an investor may choose to limit his risk of a total blowout by assigning a portion of his portfolio to stocks, a portion to bonds, a portion to real estate, and a portion to commodities via managed futures. But recall that futures traders make profit by going either long or short, so whether or not the commodity sector's prices are moving in the same direction as the stock market, a good CTA should be able to achieve returns in a managed futures account. The principle of diversification may be especially valuable when you distribute all your commodity trading capital among a selection of CTAs, who each focus on different asset sectors, for instance, agriculture, energy, metals, or on different strategies, for instance, statistical arbitrage, spread trading, 
option writing, etc. Confidently selecting a managed futures program becomes very difficult when you start to realize the number of choices you have. Should you go with a CTA who has years of stable but lackluster returns? Or should you pick one that is just starting because she will be relatively more able to devote time to your account? There is an observed tendency for managed futures programs to post their best performances, expressed as annual rate of return, in their first few years because they have relatively fewer assets under management, and as accounts get larger, it becomes increasingly difficult to make nimble trades that deliver the same returns. The other questions an investor should be asking when seeking out a CTA include